another episode of The Human Side of Dev. My name is Lindsay Wardell. With me today is Alex Anderson. Welcome, Alex. Hello. Alex, how are you doing today? Doing great. Uh, ready to start off a new week and yeah, super pumped. Yeah. What What's exciting this week? Um, well, that's a good question. <laughs> Depends on your definition of exciting. At work right now, I work for an agency called Echobind. Just do software projects for all kinds of companies. And right now I'm working on a video renderer where for like a birthday or an anniversary, folks related to the happy individuals can send videos and photos into a group video. And I'm working on a renderer that takes that and turns it into a, a single combined video. So lots of work on AWS clusters to try and speed things up by creating a whole bunch of instances of the renderer. And that's always fun. Pardon the sarcasm. AWS is a bit of a monster, but it's really good at what it's good at, which is giving you a bunch of compute resource for relatively cheap. This is true. And I support both of those takes that uh, AWS is its own problem, but also it's lovely because it's not terribly expensive for the power it gives you. Yeah, you wouldn't have Netlify and Vercel if AWS were super simple to work with. Like <laughs> Right. And and that said, I'm very glad that Netlify and Vercel exists so that I can just push to a GitHub repository and not think about anything. It'll deploy Absolutely. my Lambda functions. It'll deploy my website. It'll handle all the form inputs, the authentication, and I don't need to think. And then when you need to spin up a thousand instances of some render worker to render a video job, you can always drop down the layer of abstraction to AWS itself and do it yourself. Yep. It's, it's good that we have that ability now. Yeah. Before we go too much further, Alex, would you mind introducing yourself for our audience? Sure. I am... Uh, I'm a web developer. I, I cheekily put code poet on my LinkedIn profile just because I think it's funny. Yeah, I like building all different kinds of things at the agency at Echobind. I get to build all sorts of different products from payment processors to interior bathroom design tools. Like they've got a, a large portfolio of clients and projects and stuff. And we jump around relatively frequently. In my off time as a developer, I'm working on a project called Thorium Nova, which is a multiplayer starship bridge simulator uh, where you get to play as the captain or the navigator or the tactical officer of a futuristic starship and i'm building the controls for that it's kind of like dungeons and dragons in space outside of all that i like to cook food i like to bake bread i like to hang out with my wife and very small child and uh watch TV shows? I don't know. All right. Now I need to know before I dive into the more serious topics. What's the TV show that you're most excited about right now? Oh, we, uh, we're on the final episode of Severance, and uh, it's pretty intense. It's on Apple TV. I just got access to Apple TV. Friend recommended I should watch Ted Lasso, and I, there are so many shows on there that I've been wanting to watch, and now I have access. I'm going to add that one to my list. Yeah, Ted Lasso is really good. Severance is really good. Um, I hear Mythic Quest is really good, too. I think we're going to try that one, too. We have a, a system for our TV shows where we only have one streaming provider at a time, and we just unsubscribe from one and then jump to the next month after month, which gives us a very wide variety of things to watch without breaking the budget. And, like, 
I don't watch more than one TV show at a time. My wife maybe watches two at a time. And so it works out for us. Before we move on to Thorium, which is I'm really excited to talk about, and it's been a project that I've been in, very interested in and have nobody to play it with, unfortunately. <laughs> you you mentioned you work at, a, at an agency working with lots of different clients. And I, I had a similar experience. I worked at this.labs for a while. And I really appreciated the flexibility that that kind of job offered. I got to work on multiple different projects. I don't know which ones I can talk about specifically on a podcast, but I worked with the Wikimedia Foundation, for example, and a handful of other jobs. And just getting the the difference in the kind of project was really nice uh, as something to break up the day, do do different things. And then as part of my job, I also got to do podcasting, writing blog posts, uh, video streams, things like that. And you get to write blog posts at Echobind too, I believe, right? Yeah, we uh, do client work for 32 hours a week, and then we get eight hours of what's called investment time, which we can use to work on anything we feel like. My guiding principle when it comes to managing myself, and if I become a manager of others, is to look around and find the most valuable thing that you can do at any time uh, in whatever context you're working on. And so for me right now, that's I'm I'm doing an evaluation of different component libraries like Chakra UI, Tamagui is a new one that's come out, Flowbyte, uh, and the new ShadCN UI uh, that combines Tailwind with Radix, and trying to find out what the the best qualities of each of these are to decide how can we best take advantage of these component libraries, get good accessibility, good developer experience, good designer experience, which I don't think a lot of people think about. They think, I'll oh, just throw a Figma file at it and the designers are happy, but it's a lot more than that. And, uh, and, and performance and all of that stuff. And just find out what works best for us right now. So I'm doing a whole bunch of research on that. You can expect blog posts for that. My biggest hit while I've been at EchoBind was the why we ditched GraphQL for TRPC, which I kind of did the same thing. I evaluated TRPC versus GraphQL and determined, oh, GraphQL is great, but for our purposes, it's TRPC works much better. That's kind of the position I find myself in is I do a bunch of research, I write up RFCs for internally, and then I turn those into blog posts for everyone else to, to read. So you can look forward to that sometime in the future. That's really cool. I... I did similar work at this dot, but it was particularly focused on Vue.js. Um, but I really enjoyed that that research aspect and and putting together a resource to be able to explain what this new thing is and why you should be interested in it at least, as opposed to just writing it off. I am slightly curious, and on on the show, I don't want to dive too much into any particular technology, but I am curious because I have not yet played with TRPC. What is exciting about it? Yeah, I would say TRPC is kind of like ChatGPT. There was nothing stopping you from building your own TRPC with the tools that were out there, kind of like you could use GPT and other large language models to build your own language model. But then they wrapped it in such a really nice UI that's very responsive and works really well, and suddenly it has exploded in popularity. Um, I feel like TRPC is doing the same thing where by starting with the concept of what if we could have end-to-end -end type safety with all of our data without having to go through a huge code generation setup and all kinds of 
hoops to jump through of GraphQL, which those hoops are good and important in specific cases. But for simple cases, just have an RPC endpoint. For anyone who doesn't know the terminology, RPC stands for remote procedure call, where you're just having the client send a message to a server, and server does something and then sends a message back. Um, alternatives being GraphQL and REST and SOAP, if you really want to, I guess, where those have just a little bit more structure to the calls that are being sent and received. So for me, the draw of TRPC was simplifying, was removing cruft, removing steps that the developer has to go through in order to implement an API. GraphQL has a lot of steps, a lot of things that you have to do to get everything wired up correctly. That was frustrating for some of our junior developers at Echobind. TRPC, on the other hand, has been universally lauded. Everybody loves it. Would we use GraphQL in the future? Absolutely. If the project was the kind of project that GraphQL makes sense for, which I write about in my blog post. Cool. I'll make sure to add a link to that blog post to the show notes so mm -hmm. people can read it later. Yeah. I think I think having that unified API where types are consistent across the boundary between server and client is so interesting to developers because we've never had that. The closest we had was when it was pure server side and there was no real JavaScript front ends like we have today, at which point either you didn't have types because you're writing in PHP or Ruby or everything was so strongly typed that you never had to think about it because it never left the server environment. And in the JavaScript ecosystem, we've been just slowly putting the two things back together to the point that there is that unified API, that there is the unified type system. And that's been a discussion in the Elm ecosystem as well about how Elm has a nice, strong type system. But if you're talking to a backend that doesn't, then can you really trust, trust the JSON that's coming in from your endpoints? Uh, and mm -hmm. so in the Elm ecosystem, GraphQL is the go-to if you really want that full typed experience front to back. But TRPC looks really cool. And just having that as a, a framework that you're using on the front and back end seems extremely useful. It is. It is. Uh, it's, it's type safety is just a little bit sleight of hand. The word you use, trust, is exactly the right word because... It only works so long as you trust that your backend is actually behaving nicely or that your frontend is sending the right RPC calls. And in incidentally, don't tell the Alex that works on TRPC, but I kind of forked and mangled TRPC for Thorium Nova <laughs> because I love the developer experience and I want to have that same experience for Thorium Nova where it's just really simple to get in, define your data on the server side, define where you fetch the data on the client side. But the one thing that TRPC is missing, it has subscriptions, but those subscriptions don't make it easy to produce live queries where you request data from the server and then anytime that data changes, it sends the responses to the, to the client uh, over some kind of real-time connection. I use WebSockets, um, but you could use server sent events or something else if you wanted to. So the data is always up to date on the client. You don't even have to worry about things like invalidating queries or even optimistic updates in some cases, so long as your latency is high enough. Because you send the data to the server, it updates on the server, it sends back the new data, but to all of the clients that are connected at the same time. And so everyone's data is up to date immediately. 
that was kind of fun to build and to learn to dig into the internals of trpc and learn how it works that's really interesting and i i promise this will just stay between the two of us uh i, w- I won't say anything <laughs> yeah of course <laughs> at this point i would like to dive into thorium now that you uh, mentioned it again a lot of developers have side projects and mm-hmm. a lot of those side projects are ambitious this feels <laughs> like an extremely ambitious project and i'm really curious about where it started and how how you got into working on something as complicated as building a space simulator yeah well it, back when i was a wee little lad there was this space center in an elementary school in pleasant grove utah still there the elementary school's been replaced but the space center was rebuilt with it this guy this teacher in 1990 was like hey i do this thing for my class as a reward where they get to push buttons on paper controls that i made and i put up little diagrams and whatnot on the overhead projector and we pretend like we're flying a spaceship uh in my classroom what if i were to actually build a set of a spaceship and have computers that they could use to control the spaceship. And then I can sit in a back room and control the simulation and play the role of all of the aliens and all of the characters that they meet and have them go off on these educational missions where they actually go witness a supernova, where they learn social studies by deciding how to deal with an escaped slave whose master is coming to bring the slave back or uh, the, go to visit a planet where the aliens, where, where the people that live on that planet worship aliens who come frequently to take their children uh, away to live with the gods, when in reality the children are becoming slaves of these aliens. And just all kinds of interesting things that you can do with sci-fi, which is what we've seen with uh, sci-fi shows like Star Trek and Stargate and Battlestar Galactica, I know, is one of your favorites. The Orville more recently is being able to see how in these fantastical situations, how does humanity respond and how do we keep our humanity? And it's fun to watch the the kids that come for field trips to the space center experience these things and and the decisions that they make and how almost without fail, they they try to do the right thing. Uh, That's real heartwarming, you know. So the original controls were actually built by this teacher. His name is Victor Williamson on Apple Classic computers using uh, HyperCard, which is a programming environment exclusive to Macs that's actually very, very easy to work with. You can create buttons and add scripts to them in order to do all kinds of things. And uh, some thought it to be a precursor to the World Wide Web with uh, HTML and CSS and JavaScript and stuff. It was the original hypermedia. Obviously, a lot's changed since 1990, and uh, the controls that they use at the Space Center are have, have gone through some iterative processes being built in HyperCard and then a successor of HyperCard called LiveCode, and then some enterprising developers made some controls with Apple's Cocoa framework. And then about 2016, I started working on Thorium, which was a HTML, CSS, and JavaScript-based set of simulator controls for these Space Center missions. 
they've been using it since about 2018. That space center in Pleasant Grove and several other space centers in Utah. I've I've been involved ever since 2006. I've been programming with Hypercard and Revolution all throughout that time uh, since 2006 on. So I've been very much involved, and it's kind of the thing that gets stuck in your brain, and you just can't get rid of it. You just always uh, always have that itch to scratch to try and make it better and figure out new improved ways to have these kinds of experiences. That is so cool. So so the project that you've been working on is what's being used today in these space centers. Yeah. That must feel amazing, being able to to contribute back to this thing in such a way that you've been working on for so long. Yeah, it's it, it, it does. And it is really cool hearing people talk about, like, I've got a Discord server, uh, and people sometimes hop on and say, yeah, I went to the Space Center and saw the Thorium and wanted to check out more about it. And I'm like, that's that's pretty cool. It is a little frustrating because I'm... I'm the one who's been working on it most of the time. It is open source, but if you look at the contribution graphs, it's mostly me who's been working on it since 2016. So lots of bug fixes, lots of bug reports, and uh, eventually I got tired. The whole time I said, the space centers can't rely on me because I'm just one person and I've got my own life. So you need to find other developers to work on this. That's why I made it open source, so that we can all work on this together. But... (laughs) Building an open source community, especially around such a very niche project, is challenging. So I've had to set boundaries many times and say, I'm not going to work on that necessarily. That's You're going to have to figure that out. It's a balance. Definitely. And it's definitely a challenge that we have in our industry, regardless of whether it's a, a space simulator or just a library to put a couple numbers together and generate a string. You know, mm-hmm. we... We, we have this difficulty where somebody makes something, everyone benefits from it and appreciates it, and it just kind of stays with that one person. It's something that I, I have a lot of privilege in being able to approach open source the way that I do, because the only people that rely on Thorium are those space centers, and it's working well enough for them. Like, there's nothing critical that needs to be fixed with that. Whereas if I had thousands or some packages are relied on by millions. <laughs> I would feel a lot more pressure. For me, I I open source a lot of what I work on. I try to open source as much as I can, but I do it in a way where I'm open sourcing it for me. If I enjoy working on it, then I'm going to work on it. If somebody mentions a bug or requests a feature that's relevant to what I want, then sure, I'll do it myself. Otherwise, I either expect them to open a pull request, or if it goes completely against the vision of the project, I'll say, sorry, that's why there's a fork button. Uh, that's that's the spirit of open source, is being able to fork, not expecting somebody to work for you for free. And again, I recognize that's something that I can take for granted, and uh, other people have a much harder time with because their projects are relied on by so many. Yeah. There, there's a another project that I can think of in a similar vein. It's uh, for this social deduction game that I'm a big fan of called Blood on the Clock Tower. Mm-hmm. And the creator of this app for it uh, is just called The Town Square. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. He, he created this app 
specifically to scratch an itch, uh, especially as COVID was setting upon us and he wanted to continue playing this game and learn Vue at the same time. And he became the developer of this application that was being used for live streams by the company that made the game. From what I saw, it was primarily him supporting this thing and getting bug request or bug uh, bug reports and feature requests. And eventually for him, thankfully, it was bought out. So he is now getting paid to work on this by the company. But there's still the open source version, which is very open source and very not getting as much support at this point because of that. Yeah. I am curious because you said you've worked on this project for so long. What did it look like to do the the transition from the previous uh, hypercard version into modern HTML, CSS, and JavaScript? What what did that whole rewrite and refactor feel like from your perspective as somebody working on this thing for so long? Yeah, uh, it, I, it's how I cut my teeth on HTML and JavaScript in a modern way, at least. One of my favorite concepts about being a senior engineer is that the only difference between seniors and juniors is the seniors have made more mistakes. And so you can see <laughs> all of the mistakes that I've made through this whole process, starting with a project that I call Flint. It was actually started by my brother, who was also involved in the Space Center. I joined on, and it was supposed to be the first iteration of web-based simulator controls. It was built on Meteor, which if you haven't ever seen it, Meteor is a really slick and very much ahead of its time uh, web framework that has that real-time capability built right in. And we were using that for all kinds of crazy things like powering 3D view screens and 3D sensor arrays and all kinds of stuff. Uh, it was real slick. The struggle with that is the, the developer experience just wasn't that good. We had kind of boxed ourselves in with the framework, the architecture that we have done for the Flint project. It was just overly complicated. We had made a lot of mistakes and I wasn't enjoying working on it. And that's a big thing. Again, going back to open source, if you want to work on open source and enjoy it, you, you got to build it in a way that you can enjoy it. So I eventually decided Flint wasn't the way. In the meantime, React had come out and it started becoming popular. GraphQL had become a thing. And I was very much interested because of the type safety and because of the subscription support. And so I started building... Thorium in 2016, building it with React and GraphQL. Originally, it actually had a, an Elixir backend, and then I realized that was positively bananas. I because learning GraphQL and React and Elixir all at the same time is just too much. Although for this particular type of project, Elixir would be a very good fit just because of the way that it works. But that's way too technical to get into here. If you go into the Thorium Classic repo, so the Thorium Classic is what I was starting to build in 2016, and you can see that it still has higher order components from uh, Apollo and the Apollo render props components and Apollo hooks. And you can see this, this archaeology, this uh, components and and patterns that have that's emerged over the years as you go through the commits and see how things are changed and how things are added and, and adjusted a couple months ago i started trying to remove all of that cruft and modernize everything and it's it's a lot there's just a lot to to do there and uh so that's kind of taking a i'm taking a break on that for now what 
ended up happening going from the hypercard to the revolution and there's some live code and then to the html controls is we had very big visions broad ideas of like i mentioned 3d view screens where you could see what's going on out in space and marauders map style ship map where you can see the position of every person on the ship as they move throughout the ship and just having this very deep rich integrated simulation and uh that didn't work out it was it was too early we too conceptually difficult to to figure out how all that works so when i started on thorium classic i scrapped it all and i said I'm just going to build a set of simulator controls and I'm going to base it entirely off of what already exists with a couple of tweaks to make it so that it's uh, more modern and, and works more broadly. And that was largely successful. The space centers liked it because it wasn't super different from what they had before. They were still able to do the same things that they did with the older controls, but now with a couple of additional features to, to make their lives a bit easier. That that was a good move, I think, starting, like, basing everything off of what already existed, uh, but building on it. Uh, good iterative innovation kind of thing. What kind of decisions were you trying to make as you were working on this new version, uh, as far as which technologies to use? I know you'd mentioned Meteor and React and GraphQL and uh, that you chose in the end not to use Elixir on Flint. What What were some of the considerations you were making as you were you were choosing how to make this simpler version that was html based yeah i think it's largely you know, the product should define these decisions as much as possible you got to know what it is you're actually building and how it's going to work with your uh with your users so thorium was intended to be run locally with the web server hosted on the local area network not in the cloud and that affords some interesting design decisions. Do you want to make it so that people running your software have to instantiate and manage a database of some kind? I said, no, I don't, because that's a pain. I don't want them to have to install a MySQL database and figure out all the knobs and whatever. So it uses a very simple JSON database where it just dumps all of the database contents to one fat JSON file on a 30-second throttle anytime any of the data changes. And that works in 90% of the cases. There are some people who have managed to create positively ginormous databases that actually take some time to write to the file system, and that's caused a couple of problems here and there. But hey, I learned a lesson. I now know, don't just shove all of your data into one JSON file. So... For my latest iteration of Thorium, which we'll talk about more, I'm sure, in just a minute, it's called Thorium Nova, and I've changed the database so that distinct units of data have their own YAML files now, because YAML's prettier, and that makes it so that you're not saving the entire database anytime you change anything, you're just saving that particular piece of the database. If I was actually smart, I probably would use something like SQLite. Uh, but I am obviously not the smartest person, so <laughs> I'll do it the hard way. <laughs> That's just one aspect. I think in, in large part, the other decisions, GraphQL was good because it was hot and shiny and new, and it was something I needed to learn for work. And so the work that I was doing with GraphQL at work 
helped me with the spaceship and the spaceship helps me with work and same with react. So that's a balance between what the product actually needs. Um, and that's a very large circle. And then what you are capable of doing with the resources you have, which is probably a much smaller circle. And then you just find the intersection of that in the Venn diagram and you're good to go. I simplify it a lot, but <laughs> that's typically how I see it happening in, in uh, practice as well. Yeah, I feel like that evaluation of technology and making sure it's the right product decision, but also right for you as the developer is really, really difficult sometimes uh, for, for these kinds of projects. When you're building a side project that's just for you or maybe a couple friends, you can pick whatever. You're like, I want to learn, I don't know, let's say we're building a, a mobile app and we're going to learn Flutter and Dart today. Mm. And you can just dive in. And if it doesn't work out, well, it didn't work out. Life is good. But when you're building something that's going to be used by people, even though it's a side project, you still have to take those things into consideration. Yeah, it is a it is a huge thing. And it's, I mean, you've got to resist the urge to, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail with your tools. That's why th th there's another balance to be had where you got to keep your eyes open and recognize all of the tools, all of the possibilities that are out there just so that you know if like using an actual tool analogy, if I wanted to replace the the sacrificial anode in my water heater, for example, which who knows that that you have a sacrificial anode in your water heater. Now you do. And it needs to be replaced every three to five years so that the water doesn't corrode the walls, the lining of the water heater. And in order to do that, you got to have a an impact driver. An impact, like a, 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 it's like a power drill, but for unscrewing really high with high torque. Uh, otherwise, you're going to strip the bolt that holds the sacrificial anode in place. I know this from experience. It was not not a fun weekend for me. And now I know all of those things because I had a problem. I tried to solve it with the tools that I had available to me because I didn't know the correct tools to use and. I ended up having to get a new water heater. And, and that's why it's important to, like, you don't have to chase every single trend and every single thing that's out there, but at very least be aware that there are real problems that these tools were built to solve. You don't have to learn them right away, but at least keep them in your mind so that when the time comes for you to solve that problem, you can nab the thing that you need, dive in, and actually add that tool to your toolbox. Uh, not before, though. I really like that. I, I feel that myself from the the way I consume dev content and just learning about different technologies, like TDRPC right now. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm going to throw that in my back pocket, and next time I need to write an API, I, I'll be able to evaluate it and see if it fits. An API that's very simple, that doesn't need to be accessed by third parties, that the front end and back end are both written in TypeScript, like <laughs> all of the caveats to this particular tool. But if you meet all of those requirements, mm, it's perfect. I've been having similar thoughts. Uh, we're getting away from Thorium. We'll get back in a second. Uh, I, I've had similar thoughts looking at either Remix or Astro and the way they do um, server-side uh, JavaScript work. I've been working on my personal site. I've been working on the site for this podcast, Human Side of Dev. Uh, I've been working on an Astro site for the Blood on the Clock Tower group that I'm a part of. And 
they all work well with Astro, but I can see where the pain points might come up if I were to try and expand that. And I want a mobile app and suddenly the API I'm working with is bad. It's, it's not designed for that. Um, so keeping things such as Redwood in mind or just simple rest, simple GraphQL, not that GraphQL is simple. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that's a great example as well. The, the, you ain't going to need it. Principle is really valuable until it's wrong because, oh, look, you need it. <laughs> and it's, it's, you're never going to get the requirements right from the get go. It's, it's always going to be changing because you're learning and hey, that's a good thing, right? And then the, the environment around us changes as well. And that has its own consequences. You do the best you can. It's a miracle any of us are any, able to ship anything anyway. Like you and I are speaking to each other from literally across the United States using a bunch of thinking rocks. Like that's magic. <laughs> it really is. It really is. Speaking of thinking rocks, I'm sure there are some of those in space. And so we're going to come back to Thorium Sim. Ooh, uh, good, good seg. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. You mentioned that you're working on a new version called Thorium Nova. And yeah. we've been talking about these technical decisions and learning. And now you have more information. What led you to this point of taking Thorium Classic and starting on Thorium Nova instead? Yeah. Uh, it was not a decision I took lightly. Like I said, Thorium Classic was designed for these simple, almost theater of the mind type experiences where you have a flight director behind the scenes who is controlling nearly every aspect and guiding the simulation through. They have some assistance in the form of what I call timelines, which is where they're able to trigger actions to happen at certain times. So you can make it so it plays a video clip on the main view screen of the ship at the same time as having a sensor contact appear and move across the sensor grid and sending some information for the crew to read aloud, telling them what's happening. Just different tools that they have to provide the narrative experience. And uh, they can click a button to, to go to the next timeline step and execute more actions. But there's no way to actually automate entirely the flight director's job because the simulation entirely exists in the flight director's mind as they put it onto the controls using their flight director controls. And that's fine because having a flight director actually improves the experience substantially because it's like a game master in a, a tabletop role-playing game. They can respond to and interact with the crew in ways that a computer would have difficulty doing. But I still really wanted to have the ability for the flight director to be to, to entirely focus on the narrative and not have to worry about the minutia of simulating how everything works. It adds to the realism. It adds capabilities like being able to show that 3D view screen that shows the ships as they move around through space. But as soon as you add three dimensions, that third dimension is really hard to, to deal with conceptually on a 2D screen. And so you have to automate the movement of ships through space. You have to add a physics engine. At that point, you might as well simulate more aspects of the ships themselves, like how power in the main reactor is generated and flows through the power grid to the different systems on the ship and how they consume that power using actual real physics. So there's a narrative aspect to this. There's a realism aspect to this. There's a spectacle aspect to this. We're 
better effects. And there's an educational aspect to this where you can actually point and say, here's the physics of how all of this crap works. And it actually works according to physics. Thorium Classic wasn't doing that because the flight director just waved their hands and did whatever. They were God. They could do whatever they wanted. And I tried to shoehorn all of this stuff into the Thorium Classic engine that I had built. And it was just really hard. <laughs> tried a couple of times and I just couldn't figure out how to reconcile all of the pieces. And the biggest piece that applies broadly to engineering in general is change management. People don't like change. You have to convince them that any kind of change is what's best for them. And the flight directors at the space centers were really resistant to the idea of their job changing at all. Again, when I went back to the drawing board with Thorium and did the, the old controls in, a Thor in an updated way, they loved that because it was what they were used to, but with just a couple of nice added things. So I decided this product was not intended for the original Thorium audience. Thorium Nova is first and foremost actually intended for my little girl so that we can play spaceship games together when she gets to be a little bit older. That, that right there is a, a huge motivator for me. That drives me a lot. But I also want this to be available to other people. There are a lot of other bridge simulators out there that are much different from Thorium itself. Show notes will include links to Artemis Bridge Simulator, Empty Epsilon, Starship Horizons. I'll throw in Dreamflight Adventures too, because they come from the same gene pool as I do. They started out going to the Space Center in Pleasant Grove with a hypercard and everything, and then decided to build their own simulator controls with a similar, similar setup with a flight director and everything, but with Unity. And they've got a really great product. I love it. But what I want to do is just a little bit more involved than what they're doing. So that's why Thorium Nova exists. And people play this over the internet. They play it in their living rooms. They bring it to conventions and set up bridge simulators for people to pay to come and play this, this spaceship game for a little bit. And I want Thorium Nova to be able to do all of those things as well. And I'm very curious to see if it's actually going to work out. If Because I'm, I'm, I'm putting a huge bet on whether having high realism uh, and a more, more of a focus on narrative will actually pan out as being fun. Um, these other simulators, there's a, a range, but they mostly focus on action. And uh, it, it's, it's more arcadey. Uh, whereas this Thorium Nova still is going to stick to its roots as being a, an analog of tabletop role-playing in space, uh, where it's much more much more of a role-playing game. You play the role of these crew members and you actually have to play out these narratives like you're on the set of Star Trek or the Orville or whatever. I, I will say just personally, I am very interested in this more realistic and narrative-driven approach. You you mentioned a good number of my favorite shows. Uh, Babylon 5 would be another one. And it always makes me happy when I can see the physics work right. And we're like, Star Trek is cool. I love Star Trek. Mm -hmm. The ships do not move in a in a particularly realistic way, um, mm -hmm. especially when they're they're all on the same three D plane. That's that's always <laughs> yeah. that's always exciting. <laughs> all oriented exactly the same way, and they're very close together, 
like absurdly yep. close together. Even airplanes would never get that close to each other. But you see that shot of the Battle of Cardassia with all of the Federation ships coming in and the Deep Space Nine show towards season seven. And it's like, nope, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. And that's OK, because, you know, traveling faster than the speed of light doesn't make any sense either. There's a balance to be had here between the gameplay and the realism. And I'm not saying this is going to be fully realistic. We are not going hard sci-fi here. And I think that's a good thing because that would that would be no fun. Because then you'd have to spend hundreds of years in colony ships, in generational ships, whatever, going to different systems. Mm -mm, no. I actually have decreased the level of realism when it comes to travel because in Star Trek, it takes like, I don't know, five or six hours to travel from Earth to Alpha Centauri, which is four light years away. But we don't have five or six hours to travel to the closest star system to ours. We only have, say, two hours in order to do an entire narrative that has you jumping across different sections of the our little local group. And so... Yeah, we go really fast. <laughs> like, it's it's obscene just how fast uh, ships in Thorium Nova travel. But it's it's necessary for the narrative. And that's the most important thing to me. The realism is good. The narrative is more important. I, I always like to think in Star Trek and shows like that, um, warp speed is as fast as the commercial break. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's... It, there are a couple of YouTube videos that compare warp speeds across different ones. And there's one that's come out that analyzes a complete warp jump where they tell you the distance that they're traveling, the warp speed that they're going, and the entire warp jump happens in a single scene. So you can see exactly how long it takes too. And they're like, mm, this right here, good writing, good job writers. You actually stuck to canon in this one. It is an outlier though, when it comes to, broader star trek writing <laughs> yeah i mean space travel in between in between interstellar objects is really complicated for science fiction in general that's one thing i really appreciate about the expanse is that they don't even really try that hard it's it stays in a in a very localized space mm -hmm. yeah and they still have to stretch things with how how they handle g-forces but it's it's easier to put your mind into that space mm-hmm and Again, the purpose of it is to provide the suspension, willful suspension of disbelief, where you say, okay, I don't understand exactly how everything's going on. And it's not the writer's job to explain exactly how everything's going on, but it just has to be sufficient that you can say, this is believable. I can get with this so that I can enjoy the story. Having all of those other things, the, the educational aspect and whatnot, that's handy. And in some cases, if you want to simulate, again, the, the, the way power flows from the reactor through the power grid to the systems, you got to have some kind of system for simulating that. And you might as well just use real physics with a little bit of fudging. But overall, the, the, the goal is if you're going to make a game, the number one thing you should try to do is make it fun. <laughs> if you're not making it fun, then what's the point? Uh, nobody's going to enjoy it. Cool. Um, Alex, I just have one last question about Thorium Nova as you're, you're talking about all these more realistic physics travel between stars, notwithstanding. Hmm. Where did you 
how, how did you get started with learning all that from from talking to you it doesn't sound like you you were a rocket scientist originally you are a developer how did you, how did you dive into these topics so that you could make this game as realistic as you are intending yeah i'm i'm glad you brought that up i was hoping we'd talk about this cuz i have a college degree uh it's in information systems so i'm not related to any of those sciency type things but the cool thing about a four-year college that a lot of people disregard because they say, ah, oh, it's you just just go to boot camp and whatever, which that's a perfectly fine route for a lot of people. But four-year college requires you to take the general ed credits. You have to take chemistry. You have to take biology or whatever. You have to take art history in my case, which was one of my favorite classes that I took and completely and totally unrelated to what I'm doing professionally now, but it, it, it builds you as a holistic person. It, it develops you so that you're not just a developer. You're a person that has all kinds of interests and has learned all kinds of fun things. All of this to say, there's absolutely no reason you should limit yourself to just learning programming things because those other things are incredibly valuable in different domains, in different situations. So to more specifically answer your question, I've done a lot of research. I've watched a lot of YouTube videos. I've had conversations with ChatGPT where I said, okay, explain this physics principle to me. I've spent a lot of time just plugging random crap into Wolfram Alpha. And the great thing about Wolfram Alpha is if you give it a particular unit, like say Newtons, it'll tell you all of the constituent pieces that go into making the Newton unit. And then you can extrapolate from there to figure out, okay, so if I apply so many Newtons of force against this particular mass, these cancel out, and that ends up giving me uh, acceleration or something. I don't know. Some, some unit. Uh, somebody else can go and figure out what that actually does. And all of that's come together in different ways to, to produce the equations that I'm using under the hood for the Thorium Nova simulations. So it's just learning on your own. Probably the best thing that anyone can learn, whether it be at a four-year college or at a boot camp or anything, is learning how to learn. And most of the time that involves doing research, asking questions, building experiments, and creating tests and stuff, and uh, making mistakes, just figuring it out. Sorry if that's not satisfying. I, I suppose you could read a textbook if that's your way of doing things, but I, I don't like reading textbooks, so I just kind of get my hands dirty. That That's how I prefer to learn, too. Now, I, I really appreciate that, that learning to learn and being okay with making mistakes. I have a, a friend whose 10-year-old daughter wrote on the fridge. Uh, they have like a whiteboard on their fridge, and she wrote up there, I have grown by one mistake today. <laughs> I love that. That's that's great. So Alex, as we're we're wrapping up the show here, I want to ask you, what is your favorite programming language? That's that's real tough. Uh I'm gonna have to go with CSS, though. Haters, go ahead and fight me. CSS is a programming language. One of my favorite things that I've ever done with CSS, I was doing something complicated with the sensor grid of Thorium, where I had a React update that was moving the position of contacts and fading them in and out so that you could do like a sonar pulse to see everything that's on the sensor grid and then it fades away. That was really cool. I loved it. But it was super taxing to lower end hardware. 
and uh, I hated it. And so I changed the pulse to be a CSS gradient with a background size that just increases. And I changed the contacts fading out to be a CSS animation. And all of a sudden, all of my performance problems went away. <laughs> yeah, so nothing against React. It's a very powerful tool, but if you're doing any kind of animation with it, please don't. <laughs> there are better tools <laughs> for it. One of the best lessons I've learned from React 3 Fiber is breaking out of the React update loop and using refs to update values directly, way more performant and just as safe. So CSS, for sure. Love it. I For for a while, my header on Twitter was some fake CSS that I put together to make an HTTP request. It, it, it would just be <laughs> oh, like, on hover, trigger this HTTP request, and when the data comes in, change the style. Yeah, it's and I continually would have people ask me, "Is this real? Is that a is that an RFC somewhere?" I was like, "No, I just made it up." <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah, I I love CSS. It's it's fantastic. Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people find you to continue this conversation, learn more about Thorium Nova, or any of the things that we've talked about? For sure, uh, I post random stuff hot takes occasionally thorium nova stuff on twitter at our alex1993 that number has no relation to my age i assure you that was sarcasm and then thoriumsim.com is the official website you can sign up for the newsletter i try to put out new alpha versions of thorium nova it's alpha 9 i think now uh every couple of weeks and I am trying to build community. So if you want to help guide the direction of this project, everyone's voice is welcome. Everyone's welcome to make recommendations and suggestions and uh, provide feedback. And I would love to have you. Uh, not, I mean, obviously you, Lindsay, but the listener, dear listener, wherever you may be, we love you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Alex. I hope you all have enjoyed listening to this episode as well. If you would like to reach out to me, I am on Twitter at Lindsay K. Wardell. I'm also on Mastodon at Lindsay K. Wardell at mastodon.social. And you can find this podcast at humansideof.dev. Thank you for listening and we'll see you again next week.